You're listening to episode 230 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the one, the only, the great, the marvelous, the stupendous Mr. Daniel Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, Chief? Oh, it goes. Uh, getting ready for uh, the Jewish High Holidays, Shana Tova to those who observe, etc., etc., etc. How are you holding up? It's been a week. Not my favorite. <laughs> you know, the things things are all are all busy and stressful and busy and stressful. Yeah, and it's stressful everywhere. Um, you know, our hats off and shout out and sending love and light to everyone who has been impacted by the ongoing strikes in Hollywood and outside of Hollywood. Hot labor summer turning into chilly labor fall. And our fellow uh, members of the press who, as I experienced this week, not always easy covering this, this industry. Well, you do a tremendous job against all odds. So good as on do you. My, as do you, my friend. You know, I think I'd, I'd like to say that I'm the president of the Dan Feinberg uh, fan club. I mean, that doesn't. I'm not sure necessarily that we have officers, but I am definitely on the board of the Leslie Goldberg fan club. Love you, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Why exactly are we, uh, because are we engaging? This is, this is a very fraught time in our industry, and the people who are getting us through it, who are the bright lights when we need them to be brighter and brightest should be recognized and told as much. If you love someone and they're helping you, tell them. If you're getting the support that you need from an editor, from a colleague, from a showrunner, from anyone, tell them because there is a lot of negativity out there. There is a lot of vitriol. There is a lot of hostility and you got to tell the people that you love them. That's it. That's all this is coming from. So I'm taking it a page from the Killing Him With Kindness handbook and going down to the way that my mom raised me and just said, be kind, treat people the way that you want to be treated. And that's really what my mantra in doing this job is. And it's sometimes you need the reminder to go back to the basics. And this week I got a couple of those. Definitely worth considering and definitely worth remembering the corollary, which is if you're under a tremendous amount of stress and the world is bearing down on you, you can still try not to be an asshole as an ideal preference. Well said, my friend. Well said. Well, We've got a lot to get to in this episode. We have one guest this week, and it's a friend of the five, Alex Weprin. He's going to join us for a segment coming up about Disney and Charter. It's fascinating time. I've uh, A story that I haven't prioritized enough, but is a massive one. So we're going to talk about that coming up. But before we get to that and updates in the strike zone, we're going to start off with the mailbag because in case you noticed, deal making still slow. Number one. Our first question comes from Jason, who writes, what would you say is the are the biggest titles on your list of shame? TV shows you probably should have watched, but just haven't gotten around to yet. It's a good question. It's a tough question because as to shame, I don't know if I have that many great shames, but I definitely have things where I am well aware that I have gaps. And a lot of that, a lot of my biggest gaps tend to relate, of course, and this is naturally to older television, uh, television which simultaneously is tremendously important, but has kind of gotten pushed aside in the peak TV, golden age of whatever, et cetera, et cetera, where basically some people will try telling you that quality television began in, you know, 1998 or so and didn't exist before that. So, you know, like I, I can absolutely look at things that are more current and I could tell you, for example, that my parents wish I watched more Fauda and Stissel. Those are fine Israeli shows that I've watched a few episodes of and have mentioned before that my parents are fans of and that I've watched, again, a few episodes of, but not enough. Then there are kind of more modern oddballs, like I have not watched enough Borgen. For example, the Scandinavian politically type show. And that is largely because for like the first 10 years of its buzzed about existence, it simply wasn't available in convenient legal streaming. And then once it became available in legal streaming, I had other things I needed to watch. So one of these days, I'd love to watch a lot of Borgen. But no, the, the the bigger things are obviously like, I'm not sure if I've seen more than an episode or two of Bonanza and Rawhide and Paladin. Should those be 
places of shame. I'm not sure, but I, I'm not opposed. I realized a couple of weeks ago when I rewatched, you know, for like the hundredth time, The Fugitive, the movie, because I needed comfort one evening. Great movie, still holds up, always fantastic. That I'd never, I don't think, ever seen a single episode of the original television show. But then you go and try finding out where it's streaming and how it's streaming and the way it's currently streaming. I believe Pluto has it and they've got a selection of episodes which includes like not the pilot among other things. It's, you know, sort of like the kind of greatest hits episode. But you guys know that's not the way I watch television. So I'm not going to do anything like that. There are a lot of things where I'm kind of casually catching up based on what's available. You know, I'd seen episodes of both of Bob Newhart's shows. But, you know, when I have like 22 minutes free, I'll watch an episode of New Heart and always fun because I, I know that it's not so much exactly a gap as not as filled in as it could be. But there are lots of things where I'm missing stuff. Like there are dozens of episodes of MASH that I haven't seen. There are dozens of episodes of Hill Street Blues that I haven't seen. But have I seen episodes of MASH and Hill Street Blues? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe someone would want to point out my hatred of Seinfeld, which is somewhat overblown, but my dislike <laughs> of Seinfeld. And to that, I always say I I've seen over a hundred episodes of Seinfeld. I've seen all the episodes that are generally considered to be classics. At some point, there was going to be a version of my life between my last job and this job where I was going to live blog my journey episode by episode through Seinfeld, which was either going to be amusing or awful. The truth is I didn't end up having the time, so I didn't end up doing that. But, you know, so that's like largely my gaps tend to be in the older stuff where I know I've seen enough to be generally conversant, but not enough to be an expert. Have I seen enough episodes of Dragnet to really feel like I've seen enough Dragnet? Probably I have, but I definitely haven't seen dozens upon dozens of episodes of Dragnet. Honeymooners, I've definitely missed dozens of episodes of Honeymooners, but have I seen episodes? Yeah, sure. So anyway, that's kind of like a summary. Like, I don't know if I'm really ashamed about any of these gaps, but I know that some of them exist. How about you, Leslie? What do you want to express some shame about? I mean, I have a lot of shame, but that also <laughs> comes with being Jewish, I think. Uh <laughs> But, you know, remember, guilt is a choice. So I don't feel guilty for this. And I don't, I, you know, I guess there is some shame because there are some <laughs> massive holes in my viewing library. You know, I'm going to pick up on your thread. A lot of those classic shows that you mentioned, I've, you know, look, I grew up in a TV loving household, which is obviously why I always say that television is my first love. Baseball, my second. And a lot of those shows you listed, I, I remember watching growing up with my grandparents. Like, I loved watching Bonanza. I, I don't know what it was, but when I was a little kid, my mom and I would always have Bonanza on, Twilight Zone. Like, you know, these are shows that I grew up watching, but like, I know you're a completionist, Dan, but as a kid, like, you don't know. Like, I didn't go back and say, oh, I want to watch from the beginning. So I definitely grew up with a lot of those shows. I don't think I've completed any of the ones that you mentioned. There are, def are definitely a few of the things that you mentioned, like Rawhide, I've probably never seen an episode of. But my holes, the ones that at least I have, honestly, I'm just going to say that. I'm going to duck and cover because... I've never seen Breaking Bad. I've seen an episode. I never finished The Sopranos. I've, I've seen episodes. I've tried twice, three times to start and, and binge in its entirety The West Wing, and I never go back to it. I think you're sensing a theme in that these shows are a little bit heavier. And as I've said on the show before, the stuff that I choose to watch now as someone who struggles with anxiety and depression, it's hard to insert myself into these worlds that are so stressful and so heavy because I internalize a lot of that. And this world and this job are very stressful. That's probably why I watch so much baseball. Not that that's not stressful in its own way, but those are probably my biggest holes in my viewing history, Dan. This is where I'm going to duck and cover and you're going to yell at me. I'm not going to yell at you. I mean, you should absolutely watch some of those shows, but you know, there's, there's a lot of TV and particularly in this moment, people need to be watching things that are making them happy and Therefore, that ends a segment in which we say holes a lot. Yes. Our next question comes from Carl, who writes that he uses Apple TV to search and scroll for programming across other platforms and then launches another app to watch whatever he finds. His question is, why hasn't Apple been advertising their service as a hub for all streamers? Do we see Apple being more of a player in the bundling market a la the cable companies? Or does Apple seem to remain interested only in Apple TV Plus as one of many streaming services? Well, I think a lot of people use their Apple TVs in roughly that way. And I think that Apple is very much aware that a lot of people 
do that. I, I think that this comes down to a thing that we've talked about a lot, which is the companies that are in the storytelling content business because that is their primary business versus the companies that are in the business, but they do other things and the other things will always be where the money is. And so, you know, it's part of the process. So you look at the way that Amazon has been, I don't want to say rebranding, but I do feel like in the past couple months, they've been pushing much more aggressively. Amazon, we're the hub for all of the other streamers. It's, you know, you can get this streamer through Amazon. You can get this through Amazon. And I think that is absolutely one of the places where Amazon sees its money coming from. Now, the reality will always be that Amazon will have the most of its money coming from other things. They have a different business model. Their money comes from selling stuff and whatnot and not giving their drivers bathroom breaks. But still, they, they want to make sure that people are using basically Amazon Prime Video in as many different ways as possible because that's a value add. And, and I think Apple maybe hasn't been doing that as aggressively, but I definitely think that is a thing that they envision their services being. And so probably they want it to be that. And in this case, you look at what Apple has and what they don't have. What we've discussed many times on this podcast is what they don't have is a library. And so what they have is their new programming. And some of it is very good. And some of it is is tremendous. And some of it is awful and whatever. That's that's the business. Definitely think Apple probably does view itself long term as being more, not more of a hub, but as the hubness of it being a thing that is accentuated, you know, this is the place where you get to all of the other things. I think they absolutely could make it easier to connect to and get to all of those things. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's why I, you know, not not really to plug the product, but I do love my Apple TV in part because of all of those reasons is whether or not I'm getting value out of my Apple TV Plus subscription, I'm definitely getting value out of my Apple TV as a little box that sits on top of my cable box. So I think I definitely think that that is a major thing that Apple thinks its value lies in beyond just the morning show. And yet, if at any given point, Apple is a corporation, if the morning show ever becomes the largest source of profit at Apple, something very, very bad has happened at Apple. So I think they know that. But I also wonder too, like, you know, if you're on Amazon, as you were talking about, or even Apple, and you're scrolling and you see, okay, I want to watch Billions, and you don't subscribe to Paramount Plus, and you don't have access to Showtime, you can rent those episodes on Apple, right? And I'm yes. sure that they get a cut of that. That's These are all just revenue streams at the end of the day, right? And I mean, it's not like Apple is sitting here willingly promoting rival streaming services. There's a benefit to them doing that too. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I, think, and I think that is a difference between that and what Amazon is currently doing. I mean, Amazon currently is promoting rival streaming services. They're just saying you want to subscribe to them and watch them through our platform. That sounds so confusing. Let me log into Amazon so I can get to Paramount Plus. That is absolutely a thing that they want to let you do. And and I think that Who's if doing you- Who's doing that? I, I don't know. Some people, look, the Paramount Plus user interface continues to be just horrible. And so if you, for whatever reason, feel like you would like to watch your Taylor Sheridan shows on Amazon, because that's the place that you kind of live for your viewing services, you know, Amazon similarly will let you rent episodes of whatever, you know, whether it's an Amazon show or a show that's actually streaming on Prime or not, you can buy the 99 cent episodes or 299 episodes, whatever, uh, you know, pay-per-view movies, same thing, but in the exact same case, you could do that through Apple as well. Look, what what Amazon is doing does not not make sense to me. I I understand because it does feel bundly, and people like anything that feels comforting in that sense. I could either have all of these little apps on my Apple TV screen, or I could go into my Amazon app and just watch everything there. Well, I mean. Some people will absolutely think that is a much more convenient way of doing it. And they are definitely not wrong if they do, because everyone has to watch TV in the way that is most convenient to them. And heaven knows the streaming universe at this point is not 
really and truly about viewer convenience, and it's going to become less and less about viewer convenience as it goes along. And we're, we'll obviously have more uh, to say about cable and bundling and streaming in a segment coming up that I teased at the top of the show. Our last question this week comes from Brandy, who writes that with the rise of fast services, those are the free ad-supported streaming television services, and streamers introducing ad tiers, she's worried that they might get rid of ad-free options altogether. Do we think there will always be ad-free options available from the streamers or will they do away with them in favor of ad-supported streaming? This is another thing that will come up later in the pod and you might have an answer for this. Like my instinct is that they aren't going to, at least short term, I see no circumstance in which in which the ad-free versions of the services are going to be eliminated simply because it's another way of getting money from people. And at this point, they keep raising the prices of those to the point at which people who take that option are absolutely getting gouged for the privilege of not watching commercials. But lots of people and speaking personally, see value in that. As long as such an option exists, I will pay an extra five, six, seven dollars a month to not watch commercials. That is a thing I will continue to do until my until my banker tells me not to. I do not, <laughs> I do not, for the record, have a banker. But there's no question. And again, these are these are all things that we do talk about fairly frequently. And so we're sort of, you know, kind of well, everything is greatest hits. That's that's how this goes. <laughs> I mean ultimately it all comes back down to money, like yeah, I always totally. say. Well, it all comes down to money and it all comes down to the thing that we've repeated over and over again, which is that the business model that the streamers went with, the business model that Netflix led them into, which was supposed to be the business model that was going to get away from the broadcast slash cable television model because we were all maturing and growing up and things were changing. At a certain point, people took a step back and said, that's not how we can make the most money. And so they are all backtracking because they realize that the version of the industry that existed previously was doing reasonably well and did not need to be bulldozed to quite the degree that people decided it it did just because Netflix decided to make everyone do it. And then, of course, now Netflix has commercials. So I mean, Netflix didn't yeah. make anyone do it. Netflix dangled big amounts of money and said, hey, we'll pay you this much up front. You don't have to worry about ratings. You don't have to worry about commercials. You can just there's no like time limitations, like make the show you want. We're creatively friendly and here's a big pile of money. And it, and it basically said like, we don't need to worry about residuals or back end. And this is how we got to where we are in this labor strife. So, <laughs> and people willingly went. And what's more, the studios helped build the monster that became Netflix by leasing them Friends and The Office and Battlestar Galactica and all these other things when they were a DVD by mail company. I can go on for a while, but I'll save that for our conversation with Alex coming up. I think it's notable and it's definitely a thing we keep saying is that is that for some reason people decided Netflix had to become the industry standard rather than Netflix, be, you know, to use, to use the cliched par industry parlance of that everyone wants to use. Netflix was absolutely a disruptor. There's no question about that. But did everybody need to decide that they needed to become the exact same disruptor that Netflix was? I don't think that's how you're necessary. I don't think that's how disruptors work. They're the people who are getting away from the norm. But if the norm came to them and then discovered suddenly that not everyone needed to become the norm. Yeah. But going back just to the general nature of Brandy's question, I think as long as there is still money in the banana stand that is ad-free, that will exist as an option. It just might continue to become increasingly clear that it is the premium version of the service with an underlined version of premium and you're going to pay for it. At least short term, I will continue to. I mean, bottom line is... You know, I've said this before. How can you tell me that a Netflix show is profitable when they can't sell it internationally because they need to keep those rights for their own international territories because they are a true global platform? And you can't sell SVOD rights because, well, Netflix is SVOD. So how do you make a show profitable? That's the model that every other company followed. And now they're realizing, well, wait, we just paid $150 million for whatever season of premium television, we can't sell it internationally because we need those rights. We can't sell SVOD because, well, we need those rights too. Oh, shit. And now writers want more and actors want more. And now there's AI. You know, this is how we got to this moment. If you have a question that you'd like to hear Dan and I discuss on a future episode of TV's Top 5, drop us an email at TV's Top 5. That's the numeral 5 at THR.com. Number 2. Our next segment is not... Technically a mailbag segment, but it's a 
segment based around a question that a lot of people asked us and that we were going to discuss anyway, but we're going to discuss it in the context of an email. Several people asked very specifically and pointedly, because this was before additional pieces of information, asking why Drew Barrymore is, quote, taking so much heat for continuing to film her show during the strikes as other daytime shows uh, like The View, Kelly and Mark, Tamron Hall and Sherry Shepard have all continued and no one seems to be making a big deal about it. So we're going to discuss that and the additional news that came after we asked for questions that Bill Maher will be getting back to business. And he too is, quote, taking a bunch of heat. Leslie, break down why folks are bringing the heat. Well, let's start with the new news first, because that's how I was trained journalistically. Bill Maher's Real Time is returning to HBO later this month without writers. That's the key stipulation here, without WGA writers. The WGA has blasted the move and has said that Marr, who is a WGA member, needs to adhere to strike rules and that it is, quote, difficult to imagine how real time can go forward without a violation of WGA strike rules taking place. WGA confirmed that it will indeed be picketing real time. The Guild has also been picketing Drew Barrymore's show and any other show that has returned to production that formerly employed writers that is moving forward with production without WGA writers or without writers completely. So let's take Mar as as our example here. So this is not a show that I watch, but you know that there's a monologue conceivably written by writers. There are other segments of the show that writers contribute to. So how is Bill Maher going to do this show without any writing? So it's basically just going to be, he shows up, he's got a guest with nothing prepared for him. Is he doing all of the research himself? Is he writing his questions? Because to me, that's writing. Just because I don't publish a story in a specific day doesn't mean that I'm not doing work that is going to lead to writing. So this is where you get into into the weeds, right? This is where the A through H rules come in. And that's a whole other ball of wax that we've probably talked about months ago. Let me just start by saying this. The reason that Drew Barrymore is getting so much heat is because when you're the first to do something, when you're the first to make a wave, you're going to create that tidal wave, right? Drew Barrymore saying on September 10th that on a social media post that she was, quote, making the choice to come back for the first time in this strike for our show that may have my name on it, but this is bigger than me. I own this choice. We are in compliance with not discussing or promoting film and television that has struck in any kind. But her saying that, she's obviously going back to production to help the people on her show make a living, right? You see that, right? Obviously, you know, there's a reason that these people are doing this. But when you're the first to do it, it opens the door for others to follow suit. And that is what's happening. So you have these shows. These are all struck shows. These are all shows that are being targeted by WGA pickets. When you're the first to do it, you know, look what look at last week. You know, we'll talk about this more in, in our next segment. But last week, Warner Brothers suspended overall deals with its top mega producers, right? The Berlantes and the J.J. Abrams in their stable. Guess what's happened since then? Others did the same. Drew Barrymore going back, it, it's the same thing. This happened in the last strike. Jay Leno went back. Others followed suit, et cetera. So one thing that I don't think that you're going to see is some of the big time late night hosts, right? The, think of the Jimmys, for example, and Colbert. Like they're not going to go back. They're instead doing a live read of their podcast in Vegas, right? With the money is to support some of the, the funds that are helping out of work members of the WGA and SAG. So that's part of at least why I think Drew is taking the heat. And with the Drew Barrymore show, there are the sort of clarifications that everyone is trying to make is that her problem, and Leslie has talked about this in past episodes, is not returning and the SAG after a strike of it all. That's on a different deal. Her problem is that her show does have writers who are Writers Guild members, and it is a struck show in that context. Look, with Drew Barrymore, there's the reality that if you put yourself out there in a certain way, you know, when she didn't do whatever the MTV Movie Awards thing, whatever it was, out of solidarity, if you are generally considered to be one of the nice people in Hollywood, people will attack you if there's a deviation from that. And so you can decide, I suppose, how you feel about it. The reality is Drew Barrymore's show, while it does adhere very much to Drew Barrymore's personality and to how charming and lovable she is with everybody, the show has writers. The show has bits. The show has content that is produced by people who aren't Drew Barrymore. On the Bill Maher thing, no one is surprised by this in the least, and that sort of makes the tenor of it a little bit different. You say that Drew Barrymore and Bill Maher both are going back to support their staff, and look, you can decide for yourself if you believe that that is what Bill Maher's motivation truly 
is. I don't know. I don't know him. I don't want to impugn his motivations. I can say that other people in his exact position are doing different things to support their staff. You know, the Strike Force 5 podcast is to support the staff of those five late night shows. John Oliver is doing a tour where the proceeds are going to his staff. That is a way of doing it. Going back to work is also a way of doing it. But as you say, the number of capacities in which writers exist on these shows is myriad. So if he's asking questions in an interview, as you say, that is a writer's job. That is a thing where you could go, is that scabbing? Yeah, probably by some definition. Also, it should be noted, Bill Maher is a writer on his show, and part of what the writers on his show do is give Bill Maher jokes. So when Bill Maher makes a joke on his show, he can play it off as being off-the-cuff improv, whatever it is. But if he considered it the day before and thought that would be a funny joke to say on my show, then that is a writer's job on his show that he should not be doing. So is he going to be doing a show that is that has no punchlines and is unfunny in any way? Well, some people are sitting there listening, going, how would that be any different? I'm, <laughs> and I'm sure as hell not saying that, but I am saying the job of the writers on The Bill Maher Show is to give Bill Maher funny things to say on The Bill Maher Show. It is a job that he also performs as a writer and WGA member on his show. If he is giving Bill Maher funny things to say on the show, that is Bill Maher working in his capacity as a writer, in my opinion. Look, these are all Whoopi Goldberg had to try to explain on The View how it was different, and, and she was kind of reading off of a tablet and explaining the way they were able to do the show. And people were like, well, if you're reading off a tablet, that means something, somebody wrote it for you, and therefore... And, and The View, for example, does not use WGA writers. And even still, she she messed it up about 15 different ways to try explaining it as if to say, ha, we're not doing that. I don't know. I don't know what the Drew Barrymore show is supposed to suddenly be because people can't come on and talk about their projects. Who's going to guess on that? It, that? We're about to find out. And I don't know that Who's there's gonna an answer. Who's going to guess on any of these? Oh, well, no, Bill Maher will have no problems because Bill Maher will get angry people on to complain about trans people and cancel culture without yeah. any problems. And they won't be promoting other things. What you could ask is, could he have done a separate standalone, this is my podcast where I complain about these things entirely to support my writers and to support the staff members on my show and made some money. Well, there are companies sponsoring Strike Force 5, that podcast. I assume people would do the same for a Bill Maher podcast. The truth is that he probably knows that given his audience, the number of people who are going to stop watching this because they feel like he's violating a sacred union trust is probably not that high. And the number of people who might be like, ooh, it's somebody returning to work and I wish to laugh again and maybe I'll check to see what Bill Maher is being funny about today is perhaps slightly higher. Like, I don't think in the aggregate he's going to lose audience from this because the people who are offended and horrified by this probably weren't the hugest of big Bill Maher fans anyway. And some people might see him as heroic for this. But I don't. Number three. Up third, we return to the strike zone. Like I said in the previous segment, we reported last week that overall deals have been suspended at Warner Brothers Television with only three remaining at work on post-production on three different shows. That trend has continued this week as NBC Universal has suspended many of its remaining deals for non-writing producers, as well as top deals with Lauren Michaels, the SNL kingpin, and Dwayne Johnson. CBS and Disney have done the same. You know, this is, again, not a surprise. As we reported last week, the first bulk of showrunner deal suspensions and writer deal suspensions were done early on in the strike in May and June. And any work that was left to do that was not considered writing services with producers who felt comfortable doing it continued. And now that we are getting into crunch time, this is the 20th week of the strike as we wrap it up. Uh, this show comes out on Friday. This is the end of the 20th week. You're now starting to see members of the AMPTP sit there and say, well, we've been paying these guys for four months plus. 
we have run out of things to do. We now are in cost savings mode. And then there are members of the WGA who will say that this is just another AMPTP scare tactic. Both can be true. And at the same time, more will be coming. Like this is not going to be the end of the overall deals. We know that there are still producers out there working on shows that are unscripted. Dick Wolf, I'm told, still remains active as he's got an unscripted show. Seth MacFarlane, for example, is in post on the live action animated TED show for Peacock. But yeah, the longer this goes on, the more deals that you will see suspended. That's one update. The other update this week, Dan, is the WGA is poised to meet on Friday, September 15th, with a small group of top showrunners, including Kenya Barris. As sources say, some of the industry's biggest names are seeking high-level status updates on where negotiations stand, as well as ways that they can help support the Guild in its quest for a new minimum basic agreement. So... What does that mean? Yes, there are reporters and and members of the AMPTP, as well as other people out there who are saying that this is now a crack in the WGA's solidarity. I don't know that that's necessarily true. What I do know is that the WGA did address the attempted showrunner gathering because there were two efforts to get together with WGA brass that didn't happen until the Guild ultimately decided that, yes, we should actually do this. Guild leadership did address this on Monday night in a meeting with strike captains in which the union communicated that Barris and Fargo showrunner Noah Hawley were seeking updates and information directly from the negotiating committee. And the WGA, according to a strike captain, said it didn't think it was a good idea initially, but has now moved forward with those plans for the meeting on Friday. The strike is now heading into its 21st week and come the beginning of October, if this stretches into October, will officially become the WGA's longest strike in history, surpassing the one in 1988 that lasted for 154 days. What happens next? Well, the showrunner meeting happens next, and sources say that there are conversations taking place within the AMPTP of, should we move on and try to negotiate with SAG-AFTRA, the union that represents Hollywood's performers? Or should we stick it out and continue to try to negotiate with the Writers Guild? I don't know exactly which sides, if it's like legacy media companies arguing one side and streamers arguing another. I don't know who is on which side of that. But one thing that I do know is nothing is going to happen until after the showrunner meeting. Will the WGA go back and try to make another counter proposal? Will the AMPTP say, okay, well, silence is golden. We can't continue this. This is stupid. We're going to go out and, and make another counter offer. Both sides right now believe that it's the other's turn to make a counter. The WGA has remained steadfast that they already responded to elements of the AMPTP's last proposal, which the Hollywood studios and streamers did send out and publish. But the AMPTP is saying, well, the ball's in the, the WGA's court. And the WGA is saying, nope, your turn. So this is the impasse that we're at. Maybe the showrunner meeting will help goose things one way or the other. That will be a story that uh, I will be reporting later Friday. That's where we are in the latest strike updates. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty brutal out there. Stay safe, folks. And this is why we did Mailbag with All Dan, because that segment was literally just me providing updates. So it was. There you but, go. But you, it was, but you did it well. And the kids appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. Number four. Up next... For a look at the TV industry's other top story this week, the carriage dispute between Disney and Charter that resulted in Freeform and other networks being permanently removed from the cable provider, we are thrilled to welcome back THR Media and business reporter Alex Weprin back to the show. Alex, you've been crushing this beat among others recently, so thanks so much for carving some time out and joining us again. Uh, happy to join Leslie and Dan anytime. My first question is this. So before the Charter and Disney standoff resolved, I had an executive tell me that this was a massive story that could impact the industry more than the strikes in that if big conglomerates like Disney lose these cable deals and the revenue from them, the entire TV ecosystem will be impacted. Do you think that that's fair to say? Yeah, I mean, the worst case scenario for this this dispute, if, if they failed to come to terms and, and Charter did actually exit the TV business would have been just a, almost a total collapse of the entertainment ecosystem. Like it's not an exaggeration. You know, the, the money that has powered the entertainment business for the last 40 years has been driven by cable TV. Um, you know, so there would have been a dramatic negative effect. The good news is that worst case scenario uh, has passed. It's not going to happen. 
And but there still will be uh, major repercussions from what they did do. And we're going to feel those for years to come. Um, you know, it's going to lead to different sorts of bundles. It's probably going to lead to a purge of cable channels over the coming years. So there will be repercussions from this deal. But the good news is that the worst case scenario did not come to pass. In these conversations, we always talk in terms of winners and or and losers. And I've heard interpretations in which Charter won, in which Disney won. I've also heard interpretations that just make it clear that the only real winner was the NFL for flexing its power in this entire situation. Where do you stand now, having had a couple of days to reflect on who won and who lost? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, there's two ways to think about it. One, you know, is is who blinked in this discussion, and the second is who won. In the case of who blinked, it, it seems pretty clear to me. Uh, Charter CFO spoke, in, spoke at an investor conference this week, and she said, "quote We achieved all of our objectives." Uh, Dana Walden, who's the co-chairman of Disney Entertainment, she told me in an interview that uh, "quote uh, They had to make some trade-offs." So it's pretty clear that Disney blinked in this situation. That being said, having had time to digest the deal and and read some of the analyst reports and talk to folks in the industry, I do think that that both sides are actually quite happy with this deal, and that it could actually lead to positive knock-on effects for both Charter and Disney. Um, it could lead to new types of, of content bundles that, that bundle streaming and linear television. It will have both positive and negative effects for Disney's streaming ambitions. It probably will have higher costs for Charter, but Charter kind of has said they want to use this deal to kind of chart a new course, so to speak, in the pay TV ecosystem. So I actually think this is actually will be looked at as a pretty good deal for both companies. So you you mentioned that Disney will eventually have to drop some cable networks and, and the impact of this on on bundling and everything else. But one of the things that I thought was super interesting, obviously losing Freeform and FXX and some of the, the Disney-focused, uh, the kids-focused networks is part of the fallout here. But on the plus side, charter subscribers now get access to Disney Plus at a discounted rate. Is that correct? They're actually going to get, you know, my understanding is that once they work out some of the details, if you're a Charter Spectrum Select TV subscriber, that's like their core TV service, you'll get Disney Plus for free. They're going to include that on as part of that service. Which is basically what, what HBO did with HBO Max when it launched. Current HBO subscribers got Max for free. Yeah, but of course, HBO is a premium product. Disney Plus, you know, is going to be included in the basic cable package. And I think that's what Charter ultimately wants to do here. You know, if I was running Peacock or Paramount Plus, you know, I would expect Charter to make similar demands of them where, you know, Peacock and, the, and those services will be included in the basic cable TV package for consumers. That So it'll include linear channels and these streaming services as well. I think it's going to get a little complicated with Max because that's still built on the bones of HBO, which was this premium service. However, HBO never had ads. Max does. And a lot of programming that used to be on regular old cable TV, like on HGTV, is now on Max. And so I think Charter will use that to demand uh, access to the Max service for their subscribers. Right. So this basically is the beginning of the streaming bundle, but it's being done through cable operators. Yep. So that's basically leads me to like, I'm always, I'm trying to think about long terms here. So as you said, like th the next time that we wind up seeing another carriage dispute like this, you're going to have to see Charter or whatever, DirecTV, whatever cable company off getting, offering its subscribers these streaming services for free. So at a certain point, you can subscribe to cable through Charter. And by doing that, you have Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, Peacock, and who knows what else. Basically, all the legacies. Yep. What Now the next question becomes, does Netflix, Apple, Amazon, the tech companies, join that streaming bundle? And what happens now if the revenue from these cable deals is funding a House of the Dragon, for example, and all of these other things, and, and that's where all these companies are getting the money to spend on content. If you know, we're a few years down the road from now, there's, you know, the idea of cable is completely out the window because there's no more freeform or FXX is gone and Universal Kids and all these other niche channels are gone. You're paying for cable, but you're really just paying to have this streaming bundle. Do they still get that same revenue? Yeah, I mean, that that is the big question. I think very few people I talk to expect, at least in the medium term, the revenue from streaming to to match the cable bundle, because that's like just an incredible economic engine. Remember, the whole premise of cable is that you're paying for everything, whether you watch it or not. And so if you have these niche channels that you love, 
that's great, but you're also helping to fund niche channels that you have never seen in your life and vice versa. A person down the street may never watch the stuff you watch, but they have their own stuff that they like. And so this new model isn't quite that. It's different. That being said, it also does seem clear to me that a lot of these cable channels really are currently being used to funnel content to these streaming services. And so if a lot of the content is already available on streaming, you could probably lose quite a few cable channels without really losing all that content. So there's probably a, a middle ground there where you have a slimmer bundle with fewer channels, but you still get pretty much all of the content. That being said, I think there will be some casualties from this. Some big channels that uh, that maybe people are surprised by will end up going by the wayside, and maybe some content won't make the cut either. Yeah, I mean, Freeform is a great example. We have a story that uh, posted this week looking at the history and uh, future of Freeform, and one of the things that I think is so interesting is the bulk of the of Freeform viewers are on Hulu, and if you're a charter subscriber, you no longer have access to Freeform, but you, instead you've got Disney Plus. Well, guess what's guess what's long launching next year on Disney Plus, a Hulu tab. And guess what content's on Hulu? Freeform. So you're really not technically losing Freeform. I mean, maybe for a couple of months, because this is obviously the big time of year for Freeform with their Halloween month-long celebration, and they have a Disney one, and then they have, you know, then they run into the Christmas programming month. So I mean, really, you know, it's like Freeform was in, as you reported, 74 million households. It's losing 15 million from the charter deal, but th- that's still a big population who have access to Freeform. But if these deals can, t- if if the next cable provider comes in, if DirecTV comes in and says, "Hey, we want the charter deal," then Freeform vanishes and it goes from seventy four to, you know, let's just say fifty. I don't know how big these cable pro- systems are, but yeah. eventually that's going to spell the, the beginning of the end. Yeah. Which the long term impact is Freeform will tr- be, not be able to charge as much for ads because they won't be in as many households. And when you charge less for ads and there's less money coming in, Freeform already doesn't. Even even have a dedicated executive. I mean, it, it now is is covered under the number two at ABC, right? The death spiral could come quicker than you might think because some of the other providers like Comcast and DirecTV have what are called most favored nation clauses. So if they want the same deal that Charter got, they can, they'll be able to get it in the coming months. And so the end result is um, some of these Disney Junior Freeform, they could, I think, uh, really lose a lot of subscribers much quicker than people think. How do you close up a cable channel like hypothetically speaking let's let's say disney xd you know they decide to pull the plug on that what what happens what i covered was nbc sports network it was a fairly widely distributed sports channel and they just said you know what at the end of the year it's going to go away and then on december 31st they put up like a static image that said find your sports on usa and that was up for a couple weeks then it just disappeared it was gone and it's that easy to fold a cable network it is yeah they can fold it pretty quickly well, what what is your sense of how these the individual networks from FXX and Freeform and all of the various different Disney demographic splinter networks, how they came to be the networks that were excluded from this and who that made happy and who it didn't make happy? You know, Dan, I think any entertainment executive who's being honest with you will tell you that for a while there... In the late 90s and early 2000s, there were a lot of people got kind of greedy. They were asking for higher fees for cable channels like ESPN. And at the same time, they started adding new channels, not because there was a huge demand for them, but because they could. And they made money from advertisers, right? Well, yeah, but it was really the fees. Like if they could charge a three cent fee on Disney XD, that was basically free money for them. Because if you think about it, Disney Junior and Disney XD were basically offshoots of the Disney Channel. They served, you know, Disney Junior was just preschool content that had been airing on Disney Channel in the mornings, but it was 24-7. Disney XD was kind of this tweener content, a little older, that had, it airs on Disney Channel in like the early evening, late afternoon. And so it was just 24-hour offshoots of this core Disney channel. FXX was a more comedy-focused you know, version of FX. FXM had all the movies. They were, off, they were secondary or tertiary channels to these what I would call hub channels. And you know, for the entertainment companies like Disney, it meant more carriage fees because they got to charge fees for those. If you wanted FX, you also had to carry FXX and FXM. But it also meant more advertising revenue because you, know, you would have people that would tune into a movie or watch some of these shows. Uh, I, I think that these secondary and tertiary channels, as well as some major channels, will end up vanishing over the coming years. Um, you know, I don't think we need them anymore in this day and age where a lot of the stuff is on these streaming services. They may have served their purpose. And I think, again, I think some of these companies got a little greedy and kind of maybe forced some channels to exist that probably shouldn't have existed in the first place. We're going to get blowback from that. And we'll see what happens. 
But if if Freeform goes under, where will I watch my repeats of 700 Club? (laughs) (laughs) What's so interesting here is Freeform is actually, it it can trace itself back to the very early days of cable TV. It was, you know, Pat Robertson founded it in 1977, like before ESPN, before MTV. And it was really widely distributed. So if Freeform can go, that's what makes me think that some other pretty big cable channels are going to go. I don't know what's going to happen. But if I was an executive who worked at, who oversaw, you know, an Oxygen or a Sci-Fi at NBC Universal or even like an MTV or VH1 at Paramount, why does MTV need to be in the cable bundle anymore? No, because it's like almost 24-7 repeats of ridiculousness. It's a historic channel, right? It's a really important channel in the history of television. But they're not really investing a ton in programming on MTV right now. And so I think that Charter is going to go to all these companies and say, you need to make your case for why we should pay you for these channels because we're done just paying you because we paid you for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years. Yeah. I mean, USA Network is a great example, right? This was the former number one cable network for something crazy, like 13 straight years, something like that. And they had this big wealth of originals, right? Plus they had repeats of like all the procedurals and everything else, but they had suits and all these other big blue sky shows, Mr. Robot as part of an, a later rebrand. But like, there's nothing now, like what's left. It's it's like Chrisley knows best wrestling. And I don't, and they don't have any other originals. It's all like windowing. Sometimes they, they throw Peacock stuff on there, but it's like, you're, you're totally right. Their, their strategy with USA, that's where all of the NBC Sports Network programming ended up. So I think they still have NASCAR and they have wrestling. They have WWE. They have but all that stuff is on Peacock too. And soccer. It's all on Peacock. Exactly. Oh. So that's the issue here. Um, you know, it is the home of NBC Sports on cable. But it's all on Peacock as well. And so I think that's, you know, that's where things are going to come to a head here. Uh, And I think Charter is going to force some of these companies to either reinvest in their cable channels, which is a crazy thing to think about, or else uh, get prepared to shut some of them down um, and just give them the streaming services where all the programming is anyway. I, I want to go back to my question, the winners, losers question and and the issue of the NFL, because the timing of this, there was obviously a lot of antsiness because you know, U.S. Open tennis fans had to deal with the fact that they couldn't watch all of the U.S. Open tennis because of this. But based based on the timing, I think there was a pretty general assumption or presumption that if Charter hadn't had access to ESPN and viewers hadn't been able to watch Aaron Rodgers tear his Achilles, there would have been a genuine mutiny. Is it that simple that basically this deal had to be made because if it didn't, the NFL, people would have brought out their torches and pitchforks because of the NFL? Everyone I spoke to pointed to that Monday night football game as the tipping point. Basically, if if they didn't have a deal by that game, then it was over. They might not ever have a deal. Here's my question. You can't stream Monday Night Football? You can't stream the U.S.? You couldn't stream the U.S. Open? No. There's no legal way. That's what's left on linear. There's no legal way to stream those sports. Um, I I will say that, you know, Spectrum is the dominant cable provider in New York City. And so the Jets-Bills is a really big game for the New York market. So I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, Charter kind of strategically said, oh, we're in a good position to kind of force Disney's hand here. And so, you know... I. You think, Dan, to your point, it does speak to the power of the NFL. You know, look at the ratings from the first weekend. They're crazy. It's the only thing on television that can get those sorts of numbers. It's not even close. Yeah. And because it's not award shows anymore. It hasn't been for for some time. Anyway, Alex, this has been a really great discussion. And your coverage on this continues to be excellent. Uh, for our listeners, you can follow Alex on social at, at Alex Weprin. Thanks so much for joining us and carving time out. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Not a whole lot to choose from this week, Dan. You've got The Morning Show, one of your personal favorites, sarcasm, and Wilderness on Amazon, whatever that is. Dan, what you got? Well, there's more to it than that. And so ultimately, it's going to be funny because people will look at the things I've reviewed this week, and they are not the things I'm going to recommend. And then I'll talk about the shows that I do recommend, which aren't the shows that I reviewed, though... uh, our wonderful colleague Angie reviewed at least one of them. So the morning show's back, and it's got John Hamm, and uh, and it's a big fall for John Hamm because he's also one of the stars of Fargo. And uh, yeah, I have high hopes that uh, Fargo's going to be better than the morning show. But uh, look, anyone who knows me and who listens to me and reads me knows my feelings on the morning show, and my feelings on the morning show are pretty consistent. It is. Uh, 
It is a show filled with actors who I love. It is a show where some of the actors who I love are giving very good performances that I like and respect. And it's a show that either intentionally or unintentionally really enjoys doing stupid things. And part of why it enjoys doing stupid things is because lots of people watch it in a kind of train wreck sort of way. And so you're not necessarily pandering to critics when you have a ridiculous subplot like Steve Carell's Mitch in Italy last season driving off a cliff and then multiple episodes mourning him, even though he was a really, really gross sexual harasser and potentially worse, the attempt to rehabilitate that character was was so dismal. And the episode where everyone found out about his death and, and they were trying to make sure they had two sources so that they could report it, which was basically a straight up ripoff of the uh, newsroom Gabby Giffords episode, which people will remember as the as the Coldplay episode and the and also a good reminder that good reporting has more than one source. And that's look, sometimes the show is reflective of the media landscape landscape to some degree. And so everyone being sanctimonious about needing two sources is, you know, that's responsible journalism. So, so good on them, I suppose. Anyway, it was awful. And (laughs) responsible journalism aside, it was just plain awful. And last season, when I watched my screeners, I had to stop at episode eight, which was the episode after Mitch Kessler's death. I just could not watch anymore. I was so generally grossed out and annoyed. And it was taking such a toll on my psyche to have watched eight episodes consecutively to get to that point. So like my review of season three is that I watched 10 episodes of the morning show over this weekend and it took almost no psychic psychic toll whatsoever. Uh, So so if that sounds like a rave to you, that's a very strange sense of what a rave sounds like. But also, look, it means that the show absolutely ticked me off less. Uh, Do I have colleagues who I knew watched the show, who I sent DMs and texts and other things to when I was being incredulous about certain plot points? Absolutely. Uh, Our friend and colleague in the grand world of television, Linda Holmes, can vouch for that. But I, I kept watching and there was no point at which I really needed to kind of drive off the road in Italy in order to get away from this. So yay. Now, were there things happening this season that were pretty horrible? Yes, absolutely. Uh, You know, the season picks up in 2022. And when I saw where the season was picking up, I legitimately got relieved that I wasn't going to have to deal with the 2020 hindsight depiction of the January 6th 2021 insurrection. I was like, yay, we're not going to have to see how the morning show handled the insurrection. And I was wrong. This season's worst episode is the fifth episode, which fills in all the gaps between the seasons and does feature the January 6th insurrection. And what I believe is the first uh, television program to scripted television program to kind of reenact the events of January 6th. So yay. But the way the show treated it is very much morning show style in that it's awful. And the ripples from that do kind of infect the second half of the season. But look, there are reasons to keep watching this show. This season is, as I said in my review, this season is basically network, the movie I mean, meets billions because so much of the season comes down to jockeying for corporate supremacy between a billionaire played by John Hamm, who has resemblances to Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, hypothetically the owner of The Hollywood Reporter, other various things and people of power. So John Hamm plays that character. And then you have uh, Billy Crudup's Corey, who really and truly has always been my favorite part of the show, because Billy Crudup is giving a such a strange but nuanced performance and, and a performance that really does a good job of working around the fact that the show doesn't fully understand if Corey is meant to be a hero or a villain. And I think that probably the writers on the show would be like, he's complicated, like people are. My response would be, he's inconsistently written like people aren't. But whatever. Billy Crudup's great to watch. I would also say that John Hamm is is good. He's, you know, he's kind of chewing scenery in a in a jovial, handsome, somewhat aloof John Hamm kind of way. Uh, he's got lots of stuff with Jennifer Aniston. And, you know, you put Jennifer Aniston and John Hamm on the screen together. They are a handsome couple of actors. And there's something to be said for that. Speaking of new additions, Nicole Bahari pops up this season. The show has really always struggled to deal with its 
females of color, which is always semi-ironic to me because part of what the text of the show is is about how this morning show has struggled to deal with women of color. And the show has had its own problems. So Nicole Bahari's character... I think she's great in a couple episodes, a couple of the episodes which basically make that character kind of the sounding board or the test case for basically racism in the workplace and for, you know, sort of how people react to political activism in the workplace. I think she's excellent in those episodes. And then the show kind of forgets she exists for the other six episodes, because that's just how the show works. She's still better treated than uh, Gugu and Botha Raw in the first season, for example, which is just a, a horrible treatment of a great actor in a way that still ticks me off. But a lot of this season is kind of giving these female supporting characters extra things to do. I think it's a really good season for Greta Lee. I think somebody either watched or saw past lives and said, good God, this is a great actress who we've been underserving. Let's give her things to do. She's good. I think Karen Pittman is very good. I thought she was one of the sort of highlights of last season in in a kind of quiet supporting way. I think she's good, even though her storylines are kind of morning show dumb. So yeah, I, I mean, ultimately, I I didn't I wouldn't say that I loved this season. I wouldn't say I liked this season, but I would say that it annoyed me less and therefore it was easier to concentrate on the things that I enjoyed. And so there's that. So that's the morning show. I love Jennifer Aniston. Let me just say that. I love Friends. <laughs> it's my favorite comedy. I tried watching season one because I love Jennifer Aniston. I got, I think, a third of the way through and I was just like, I can't do this. It's it's tough because I really I think she's I think she's really good here. And I also think Reese Witherspoon's really good. And I haven't even mentioned Reese Witherspoon at all almost in this conversation. And that's because the things that the season has her do are are really erratic and and mostly don't work. And it's you know, part of it I assume has something to do with the fact that Reese Witherspoon is a crazily busy producer and television personality. Like it's completely possible to me that she might have told someone, look, I obviously still want to be involved, but if there's any chance you could knock down my part by 15% so that I can do the 15 other things I'm doing, that would be great. Or maybe she didn't. Maybe, you know, Bradley's plot was just less interesting this season. I mean, it's a new showrunner this season, right? It is. It is. I don't know that I would necessarily, you know, let's say I can tell the difference because it took me off less. Yay? I, I don't I don't know. It, it, it's not like it suddenly becomes a great show this season. But look, it is a it is a soapy, sudsy show. And part of the genre is that it instigates people. It, it causes people to viscerally respond to the storytelling that you're doing. And a visceral response is me turning off the show after episode eight and saying, I can't watch any more of this. But also for some people, that visceral response is, this is pissing me off so much, I can't wait to see what they're going to do with it. And I understand that there are people out there for whom that second response is their response and God bless. I mean, obviously, people want to work on this show. You, you don't just randomly get John Hamm for a season-long character arc if you aren't a show that people want to be involved with. So, who knows? That's the morning show. It has already premiered. It will continue airing on Apple TV+. Premiering on Friday is Wilderness on Amazon. It is based on the novel by B.E. Jones, and it is adapted by Marnie Dickens. All the episodes are directed by So Young Kim. It's kind of, it's sort of season three or four or two or whatever of When Women Kill, Why Women Kill. What was the name of the Mark Sherry show, Leslie? Can you tell me that? Why Women Kill. Why Women Kill. So yes, that is basically what this show is. The uh, the plot line is that uh, Jenna Coleman and Oliver Jackson Cohen play a married couple of Brits who live in New York City. They move to New York for his job. She has basically become a somewhat bored homemaker, but they continue to seem to be wonderfully happy. Then she discovers that he's having an affair. He says it's a one-off. She discovers it's not. In a desperate attempt to salvage their marriage, they go on a road trip of the southwestern United States, including the Grand Canyon and Yosemite. And, well, based on where the show is shot, they appear to spend some time in Banff. I I don't think that that makes any sense. I just think that's where they shot. Banff. It's fun to say. Beautiful. Oh, it's gorgeous. And the hotel that they shoot things at, stunning. But I also don't know that the hotel's playing itself. It may just be playing a random stunning hotel in a different location. It's hard to tell. And then out of nowhere on their road trip, the woman that 
the hubby is having an affair with, played by Pretty Little Liars star Ashley Benson, and her boyfriend, played by Eric Balfour, show up out of nowhere, and the character played by Jenna Coleman decides that she needs to get some revenge, but who exactly is she going to get some revenge on? And when she gets her revenge, what are the consequences going to be? For like three episodes, I, I thought The Wilderness was actually kind of trashy fun. And, and I mean that in a good way. I, I kept I kept watching it. I kept enjoying it. I, I really like uh, Jenna Coleman. I think that she is wonderfully expressive and just a very appealing actress. I think that she and Oliver Jackson Cohen make for a very attractive British couple. As I said in my review, I, I don't know that Ashley Benson is really good here because I don't think she really has a character, but she has exactly one beat. There is a scene where Kara, her character, Kara, I guess, and Liv, the Jenna Coleman character, are having a conversation and there's a three-second emotional beat that Ashley Benson plays that is wonderful. Like I actually sat and rewound the beat because I was interested in what she was doing as an actress. So full credit for that. As long as the show's kind of on the road and it's about these characters in the wilderness and it's about what happens when you take otherwise civilized people and boil down their needs to kind of primal necessities. I enjoyed it. The last three episodes are, are sort of a bland whodunit. They're almost all just set in New York City. It starts taking itself too seriously. It stops being trashy fun and just starts becoming kind of trashy leaden. And I didn't really like the last three episodes. So decide how you feel about a show that is half trashy entertaining and then half just dull and trashy. But, you know, still, the first three episodes are trashy, entertaining, and I like watching Jenna Coleman, so there's that. Our colleague Angie, who I already mentioned, reviewed The Other Black Girl, which is an Onyx Collective uh, production on Hulu, and it is based on the Zakaya Dahlia Harris novel. It is uh, co-created by Harris with beloved actress Rashida Jones. It's kind of the latest TV show that's kind of a hybrid of corporate satire meets semi-horror story, semi-mystery stuff. And I watched six episodes of it. I kind of, this and the next show, I had to make a choice between concentrating only on one of them or sampling both of them and deciding if I'm going to get back. I watched six episodes and I will finish it because I liked it enough for that. It is reasonably entertaining and pointed. I think it is more entertaining and pointed as a satire than as a thriller slash mystery. And probably part of why I stopped at episode six is because it was already beginning to feel more like a mystery and a thriller and less like a satire. And once it reached that point, my interest was waning fair amount. So yeah, but it, but a lot of the things that it wants to talk about, about being a black woman in the workplace, about being a black woman in the workplace whose position is presented as a token position, either within the specific workplace or from the outside. I think those are interesting things. I think that the lead actress, Sinclair Daniel, I think she's great. I think Ashley Murray is is pretty solid as the other black girl who gets a job at the same publishing company and things get a little tense. There are little amusing supporting performances. Bellamy Young is kind of funny. Eric McCormick is kind of funny. Uh, Brian Baumgartner from The Office is actually genuinely hilarious as a really, really gross author who causes a lot of trouble for the main characters. I, I laughed at him and what he was doing several times, and, it, and it's very, very different from how you think of him in the office. The best thing about the show, and look, everyone's going to think this is damning it with faint praise and I don't care. <laughs> um, the best thing about the show is that it's a half hour show. That just makes it so easy to digest and makes it feel like it's moving at a pretty solid clip. It's kind of a tense show. And if you're not a fan of of watching tense shows and, and sort of mortification based humor and drama, etc., it won't necessarily be your thing, but I, I thought it was. I thought this one was interesting. Uh, Angie really, really liked it, and I will finish it because again, half-hour episodes ain't no stakes whatsoever. Leslie, I know you're not a critic. Would you like to say anything about the other black girl? I didn't love it. <laughs> Excellent. And last but not least, after watching six episodes of The Other Black Girl, I turned my attention to Wrestlers on Netflix. In retrospect, realistically, I probably should have watched and reviewed this one because it is created by Greg Whiteley and people who are regular listeners slash readers know that he is the creator of the Last Chance You and Cheer franchises and those are really a couple of my favorite shows on television. He he has a a great formula when it comes to 
building stories and developing characters within a world that seems to be about sports, but really is about anybody who is trying to make it to the big time and realizes it may be their last chance. And Wrestlers is kind of a documentary version of the Stars show heels. I think that's how a lot of people are going to respond to it. It's about the Ohio Valley Wrestling Association League, whatever it is, which for many years was a feeder program into WWE. And so a lot of the biggest talents from the wrestling world came through the Ohio Valley Wrestling whatever, you know, people like John Cena, Dave Batista, lots and lots of very, very high profile wrestlers. And, you know, it has a certain structure that is very last chance UE. The the point is that the organization, as it has been run for years by a famous and beloved wrestler, Al Snow, uh, people will remember him wrestling with a mannequin head, that he's been running it for years and he's great at what he does. He's passionate about what he does, but it's a business that's losing money. They have new owners. And as they put it, basically, it all takes place over a summer that could be the Ohio Valley Wrestling Association's last chance. It, you know, if it doesn't find a way to make profit by the end of the summer, it could go out of business. And so they're trying to find ways to stir up interest. And it's just a wonderful backdrop for a TV show. The The characters are vibrant and easy to root for. This is probably a little shooting fish in a barrel for Greg Whiteley because, you know, look, if you're dealing with a JUCO football team or basketball team, there's no guarantee that the people you're going to want to be covering are going to be performers. You could get people who have interesting stories, but when they sit down in front of the camera, they're absolutely inert. And when that happens, sometimes the Last Chance You franchise can get a little bit hung up on the various belligerent, abusive coaches who are also the kind of co-centerpieces. Well, but in this case, with a group of wrestlers, and there appear to be somewhere in the neighborhood of like 50 wrestlers who are part of this cycle, they're performers. It's what they are. And so not only do they have great stories, some of them are heartbreaking, some of them are inspiring, some of them are just plain strange, but they know exactly how to play for the camera. Not only that, if you have a basketball team that you're following or a football team that you're following, it isn't necessarily designed for easy access to a documentary crew. You know, the camera just might not be in the right place at any given time. You might not have the necessary intimacy to, to photograph things well, etc. But when you're dealing with wrestling and it's a sport whether you put that in quotation marks or not, that is designed, Leslie, you couldn't see her, absolutely just put that in quotation marks, but friend of the five, uh, Chris Hayner, would probably Sorry, be Chris. very unhappy. I'm also disappointed, Chris. I haven't seen your review for this show anywhere, and all I thought watching my screeners was, but what does Chris Hayner think? So, nah. But it's designed for cameras to be there. And so a lot of the in-match photography is fantastic. Just getting the access to kind of see what's happening in the back rooms as Al Snow is talking to people on, on different headphones and how he's feeding lines to the announcers, how he's making sure that the refs know what the time of the match is, how he's steering the performers around when things go wrong, like when a pad in one of the corners of the ring gets thrown out of the ring and suddenly there's exposed metal and he's trying to make sure that they aren't bashing anyone's head into this corner of the ring. It's fantastic to watch. It, it really just is. And so I mentioned that I will be finishing the other black girl. I will definitely be finishing wrestlers because I just think it's really good. I think it's a reminder that the thing that Greg Whiteley and his team do, they are damn good at it. And they're damn good at selecting the things to cover. So, you know, you thought, okay, last chance you works as a football series. Will it work as a basketball series? Yes, it absolutely did, because the formula is strong. It worked as a football series and it worked as a basketball season, but could you do it with cheerleading? Absolutely. You could absolutely do it with cheerleading. And can you do it with wrestling? You totally can. I would say that Wrestlers is is my favorite thing premiering this week by a lot. I liked the other black girl. I think it's interesting. I don't think it's going to be for everybody. Some people will absolutely twist their insides and it will be more stressful than they want. Some people won't find it funny, etc. The morning show... Come on, you don't need me to tell you. Either you like the morning show or you don't like the morning show. And Wilderness, the first three episodes were good. The uh, the last three episodes, not so much. And yeah, so so that's what I got to talk about this week. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendation, wait, there's more? 
Be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporters. Now see this newsletter and you can always bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you as always for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporters TV Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Those suckers help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on the social medias. She is at Snoodit with two O's. I'm at The Fine Print, F-I-E-N. We're always happy to hear what works, what doesn't work, etc. But if you have questions for future mailbag segments, and you guys have been doing a terrific job and we are really, really appreciative. So thank you very much. You can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Dan.